Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Synergy shares his path from a non-target school in the U.S. to working in China post-graduation in consulting. Listen to hear how he thrived in China, transitioned to a big four in transaction services as one of the only expats in the office, and eventually how he used an MBA to transition back to the U.S. and break into investment banking at a bulge bracket. Also, hear his thoughts on work-life balance and how the culture at many banks leaves a lot to be desired. Enjoy. Okay, Synergy, welcome to the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me, Patrick. So it'd be great if you could give the listeners a short summary bio. Yeah, so, um, you know, I grew up on the West Coast, uh, was interested in quantitative stuff, you know, went to an engineering school, but quickly found out that although I liked math and numbers, I didn't really want to do engineering or computer science as a long-term career. So I decided to switch into finance, um, studied finance, and had the opportunity to do some uh, some internships and wealth management and uh, normal things that people do. Uh, so at the same time, I really wanted to study abroad and study other languages. So I ended up doing a study abroad program in Asia um, and ended up working there full time after graduating. So. I went to consulting first uh, at a small shop, then transitioned over to a much larger consulting firm um, to do commercial due diligence and transaction services. Did that for about five years, really liked working in M&A and around it. But at the same time, uh, you know, I realized that investment bankers and people around that area were getting to see the whole transaction process rather than just create reports and send them in and then be on their way. So investment banking is something that's interesting to me. And then after spending five years in Asia, we kind of wanted to come back to the West Coast, settle down, start a family, and do investment banking. And so the way I figured I could do all of those most efficiently was to apply for an MBA program and do a full-time MBA. So ended up doing an MBA program, interning uh, in banking uh, during the summer, then returning full-time. And it's been about five years since then. Uh, so now I'm a you know, mid-level VP at a bulge bracket bank on the West Coast. Awesome. Super, uh, super interesting that you kind of were able to make, you use the MBA, kind of make that transition, but I love the international experience. I'd love to, let's dive into that. So kind of going back all the way to undergrad, you graduated at a pretty tough time for being a finance major. Um, you know, you'd had those internships. Was it, was the jump into consulting more opportunistic? Was it just because it was, you know, right after the great financial crisis? Tell me a little bit about how you ended up um, abroad kind of uh, full-time. 
Yeah, that's a great that's a great question because I think about a lot of decisions in terms of how much was it opportunistic versus how strategic was it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that it's it's obviously everything is a little bit of both. So I was interning in wealth management during 2008, like during the financial crisis, and so you know was on the front lines of getting to see what was going on with that. Then obviously after that, you have you know very depressed kind of job recruiting going on across the board. And at the same time, I had been studying, you know, languages. I had been studying Japanese and Chinese and was planning, strategically planning, like that would be an interesting thing to do to study abroad. I wasn't planning to do a job abroad quite yet, but I thought studying abroad would be interesting. So I had that on the schedule for a long time. That's something I wanted to do during a summer. So the following summer, did my study abroad. And then, oh, look, by the way, you know, this region is booming. And then when I came back home, not so much. So, you know, at that point, I decided to expand my job, you know, job horizons abroad and then quickly found out there was a lot of opportunities uh, to go over there. So I just decided to to go for it and do it. That's surprising. You know, that's surprising to me. I guess was your was your language were your language skills that far advanced? Because from what I've heard from just some of the contacts on Wall Street Oasis is that it's really tough if you're not born and raised there to get a job there. Um, what type is it for people who are looking to make a similar kind of move like you did, are, are the opportunities still there today? And then how should they go about looking for those? It is definitely different and harder today than it was. So um, at the time, uh, you know, when you're looking in China, the, the bar for getting a visa and other aspects like that could be done by somebody who had just graduated. And now I think you need something like five years or something like that of experience. So, you know, the, the gate has closed for certain cities or certain areas for sure. And then the competition has become much fiercer. Um, that being said, I don't think it's impossible. And there's also, you know, the, there's also a lot of different countries, you know, that you could go to. Um, I think that, you know, with a... Where would you go if you were graduating today? It depends on what kind of person you are. I really think so, you know? Um, There's some people who just have to have clean water and clean air and, you know, like nice infrastructure everywhere they go. And those people shouldn't go to developing Asia. There's some people who are looking for, you know, the rawest, fastest growing experience, right? And in that case, you know, in my opinion, like China's good, but also there's Indonesia. Indonesia's huge. Vietnam is huge, right? And, you know, those are areas where if you get in early, learn the language, you know, you can do a lot of stuff because those countries, you know, the niche I found when I was working there was, you know, people in all of these countries were trying to go outbound. And so being a native English speaker and being able to be somewhat competent in that language, you know, actually helped a lot. There's a lot of synergy, you know, to coin my own username to, to working there yeah. um, because there was 10,000 people in our company who could speak the native language, but there was no, there was only 10 people who were native English speakers. So it was that big of a company that you went and you were doing kind of investment uh, research or what what was yeah i was doing uh, a bunch of different stuff so i did some as you do like it's just you know again but just comparison how did you even like the... how did you even get this you interned there like you so actually I went had, there yeah 
I met I, I met a guy at a networking session who owned a small consulting firm. Got it. And he said, I have an office in Washington, DC, and I have an office in Beijing. Like, you know, which would you like kind of like to go to? And I said, I want to do Beijing. And so that's 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 what I like to do. And so once I was over there, and that was a that was a vehicle for me to get my visa, get my boots on the ground. After a year and a year and a half of working there, you know, at a kind of again, like a no-name, you know, consulting firm, very boutique. Um, then I had the opportunity to again network my way into a much larger, you know, a big four accounting firm and and do, you know, the you know advisory side on that, at which point I did a bunch of different advisory related roles. So I mean, both of those jobs came from networking. And then I come back from my MBA and I also just, you know, it's a how, lot about how are you now? How were you networking? So you said a networking session was this like hosted by your school initially the for the no, it was it was uh, my school was helpful, but not so much for non-engineering areas at the time. Maybe they've gotten better at that now. But um, I was uh, it was involved in a, a charity, uh, a big, a, a kind of large charity name, and was at an event for that. So something completely unrelated to what I was uh, what I was going to school for or whatever. So that's that was a that was a cool opportunity for for me to make that happen. And how did you feel like you made the impression such that the person was like, hey, I'll give you a job in DC or Beijing? How did you make that impression to that person? Was it just after talking with them for a few hours or? Yeah, it's been a long time since I've thought about this, but I think- <laughs> Like why I did he very, offer you the job and not some somebody else? I think I was very, I was one of the few people who really wanted to, interested to go abroad. Like, I know that sounds silly, but at the time, like there's not that many people who were, like, yeah, I want to go work abroad and, you know, like I'm willing to be on a, you know, under market salary, you know, at first to do it. And I'm, you know, I don't know everything and I'm what's very under, humble. What's under a market? What's under market? Like 40,000 US? No, it was more like 30,000 or 25,000 starting yeah. out. Okay. And so then, you know, it's, it was when my, I think our average starting salary at my school is 50. So I took half. I took half pay to go abroad, which is insane. But at not the really. same time, not really, because then you're you open your opportunity, right? And you're like, you're seeing a new. Part my of costs the were like five hundred bucks a month when I was living there, so I yeah. probably end up saving. My taxes were nothing, so you know, I probably end up saving a lot more in general. Yeah. But then it's just about then you put a lot of pressure on yourself to grow, um, because you're taking the bet that I need to be able to grow my career faster than you know where I'm starting out at. So you're there for almost a year and a half, and it's a pretty small firm. What would what were some of the struggles of going over there? And like, if somebody were to go to Indonesia today, like, what what would you think was the hardest part? Besides, I assume language is tough, but then how did you even learn Mandarin so so fast? Language is tough, but um, you know, I think you need a you just need a mindset of assimilating. You really need it. It's just difficult, especially over the long term, especially if you're going to stay there for two, three, four, five years or more. Um, the people that make it over the long term, I think there's there's an element of understanding who you are and appreciating your own individual identity and your own culture and being grounded in that and having having some expat friends and stuff like that. But if you get too deep into the whole expat community, you only hang out with other foreigners, I'll say, you know, or other people from your own country, then You'll never learn the language. You'll never make any friends. You can't network, right? Like you're kind of just surviving. Um, 
which makes things really hard. And then people do spend a lot of time doing that. And then, you know, after 10 years, they don't know anything about the language and they're just kind of doing their job and, and going back. And that's also, it's fine. It's a lifestyle choice. But the other way, if, if someone, if some young person was like, you know, hey, I'm a, I'm a crazy adventurous person and, you know, maybe I didn't get the shot that I wanted, you know, in, you know, in the U.S. doing, uh, you know, recruiting for these large firms and I was open and interested to go abroad, like, you know, I would say definitely like dive, your, dive into the language and then just make, honestly, just like make friends and, and, uh, and hang out with people when you're in country. I think just balance your time between making local friends and, and, um, and studying really hard. Yeah. When I was in around your job, when I was in Buenos Aires, I totally hear what you're saying. Cause there's like a strong expat community there, but like I had also friends, friends that lived in Buenos Aires, you know, from, from Argentina. And that was the cool, those are the coolest experiences. Cause I was like, they invited me to like their farm in the middle of nowhere, like Rosario, like, and I traveled with them. And um, I think that's, that really helped me and improve my Spanish. Yeah. And, you know, the expat community is helpful for like venting because people kind of sit around beers and then complain about the country that they're living in. Right. That's kind of how it works a lot of time. Like, oh, the police or oh, the utilities or the electricity went out or whatever. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, you need that sometimes. But if you spend all of your time doing it, it's kind of like spending all of your time. Uh, you know, complaining about doing banking or consulting or something like that. Like you need, you need a release, but then it's very toxic if you spend all of your time Fair. on the negative. So how did you, how did you meet, how did you meet locals there? And was it tough to kind of make local friends? Well, thankfully I had a busy job and a lot of, you know, a huge, at a huge company and, you know, at, eventually um, when I was at about, when I was at my boutique, I became friends with like the few people I was working with because I was on a small team. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you, you know, you become more intimate friends with them and then, when I moved on to a big company, there's and they spoke no English. They spoke no English. No, they spoke Moment. pretty. pretty well, decent. I mean, I would say decent, decent enough. But you would right? converse. Like you would not converse in English, or you would a little bit of both, because they would <laughs> want to practice English. So it's yeah. kind of a tit for tat, right? So I'd be, you know, helping make presentations, or you know, helping the final, you know, stages of the translation of something, or doing, you know, research. I think that learning the language is important and making, making, you know, strong connections at work. There's an element, people I think are reticent to kind of try to reach out to international uh, people because there's a, there's a half truth in that, um, you know, oh, well, I'll never, I'll never be fully accepted into the society or, you know, fully immersed or fully native in the language. So why kind of bother starting to try? But I think that's kind of throwing out the baby with the bathwater and that, you know, actually getting halfway there is actually getting a lot of the way there. Um, you know, becoming, you know, people are embarrassed, but like having an intermediate fluency in the language, you know, making a couple of friends um, that are pretty deep, um, even if you're not the best man at the wedding, right? Like people that you can call on and people that you can, uh, you know, touch base with about different topics and stuff like that. That's a lot of value. And then there's a lot of people who between any two given countries, right? There's only so many people from that native country who have kind of had the experience of going to school, let's say in America, and then coming back and being able to make friends and and know English pretty well. And at the same time, same thing for for the US. It's like there's very there's not that many proportionally people that are comfortable in another country and yeah. able to kind of go work, live, play there and, and survive. And I think that 
it's not so much specifically about any one country, but I truly think like if you can go to Buenos Aires and you know work or live and there, like you could easily just go to Japan tomorrow and be fine. You could easily go to Switzerland and be okay. Like the specifics of the language are kind of what they are. But beyond that, I, I really just think like people are either travelers or they're not, right? Yeah. And it's it's fine either way. But if you are like just you know, go for it. Like take, take the plunge. If you, uh, if you're thinking about that, cool. you know, and then the other thing too, is a lot of the U S job opportunities have dried up for international students. Like people are going to MBAs or people are going to top undergrads and they're realizing that not many firms are sponsoring work visas anymore. And, you know, it's really difficult and there's a whole like cultural fit in a way that banks and people like that choose you know, who to hire. And a lot of them are, you know, have spent a lot of effort to kind of get here um, in the US and try to get a job here. But, you know, there's a lot of barriers to, to entry, certainly a lot more barriers than there are spots, you know, for people to get in. So, you know, but I would even say to those people, like, in your native country, like, it, it is value added to have had the experience to come here. Um, if you start working at a large company, like if you start working at a Deloitte or something like that back in your home country, you know, down the line, if you keep going at Deloitte, there will be opportunities for international travel. There may be opportunities for secondments or, you know, moving to different countries like at, from your job. Yeah. So kind of the larger, the larger company you can attach yourself to kind of the better for mobility options in that way. And I think that that's, you have to sometimes play the long game if the opportunities are shut off, you know, for you when you are younger, which is in a way sort of what I did as well. Yeah. So like coming from a non-target in a lower GPA. Oh, uh, lower G, how low? <laughs> how low is your G? Three? Lower, lower than pi. Okay. Yeah. 3.14. <laughs> I love it. That's my birthday. Yeah. March 14th. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so did you, okay. So I guess. You, what you're saying is, well, really what happened was you, you got a job paying not a lot of money, but in a new country with totally open, like very adventurous. Is this like in your blood or your, do you have brothers and sisters that did something similar or nothing? No, I mean, like it's, I, it's another, it's another good question. I think that we moved around a lot as kids. We're not a military family, but we, you know, we lived in 10 plus different places and then oh, wow. my parents got divorced in high school. So we're going back and forth. And so I was always kind of, I, I don't think I spent longer than three years in a single house, like growing yeah, that's, up. So that's tough. it wasn't, it was easy for me to move across the country for college. And then it was just as easy for me to just go to a different country and just give it a, give it a try. So, I, there wasn't that much holding me down. So you were there for like a year and a half and then tell me how you and, and managed to kind of get to a big four. Um, well, there's, there's, if you're in a different country, and I think I give the same advice to international students, because a lot of people, once they find out my background, like a lot of people from China and other, you know, Asian countries, for sure, um, are asking me about uh, recruiting advice or whatever, because I've been in their shoes just on the opposite side. Um, there's a lot of societies and stuff like that you can join when you're, you can join the American Chamber of Commerce, like if you're abroad. And similarly, you can kind of, um, and you can expand your network into, uh, you know, other expats and multinational people like through, through that way. 
Um, but then there's also, you know, a lot of events. Um, there's a lot of events and kind of lectures and things that are being held by different organizations. And I would just go to all of those, like everything that I could um, to try to meet people, to try to learn more about, you know, the options that are out there. Did you know, in my mind, did you, know you were thinking like, hey, I'm going to go big four, then eventually I'm going to get an MBA and go banking? Was it, what, was the, no, what was the master no, plan when you were- No, there was no master was plan. Okay. My master plan was I wanted to work at a, I wanted to work at a, on a, at a bigger platform. Okay. Um, and I didn't, I didn't, you know, I wanted to do, stay in advisory. So if, if anything, my entire career has just been one unbroken string of advisory, whether that's wealth management, it's basically advisory, boutique consulting is advisory, M&A advisory is advisory, it's client service. It's all just client service. And the investment banking is client service. So it's been one thing is like, you're making something for somebody who's paying you something for that, for your knowledge or for your experience or for your advice. So it's, it's, even though I've done a bunch of crazy stuff, it's all been advisory yeah, related. That's the, so the that's thing. the way that I've sold it in MBA interviews, especially when they're like, you did a bunch of weird stuff. Like I want a safe pair of hands. Like, why should we hire you? I've been like, well, actually, you know, I've been around transactions. I've been in client service my whole life. Like I know what it takes to get that done. Um, so, you know, it may not be the, you know, the most straightforward path ever, but, you know, I think that it also makes a lot of sense. So that was the strategic part of it. Yeah. I mean, I'm in a strategy, you know, I'm in a strategy at this big four, you were there for another three and a half years. So like you said, five years almost, or yeah, right around five years. Yeah. Um, right so tell me a little about like how, what the progression was, you know, up to manager at that big four and how you, how you grew there. Was it like a tough transition or was it like much easier? Cause it's such a bigger platform to like stand out. So yeah, there's a couple of things like, so I was at this boutique consulting firm as an, as an analyst, right. Mm -hmm. I was able to negotiate when I moved jobs, um, moving over as a, an assistant manager, which is kind of the, after a year, it was just kind of like a third year role, yeah. I'd say, at, yeah. a, at a normal big four, um, after about a year and a half of experience or slightly more than that. So that was a boost. You know, as a lot of people changing firms can give you a, a salary bump or sometimes a title bump. So I was able to do that somehow. But so you went from what, 25, that, 30K a year to what? I doubled 45. it. I, uh, doubled yeah, it? Like 60K that. or something? something. Okay. Maybe, maybe. Maybe maybe fifty, maybe forty five. I don't I don't yeah. actually remember. There, there you're honest. still living. You're still fine. Oh, I stayed in the same apartment and yeah. uh, for five yeah, years. You stayed in the same up. place. My yeah, I didn't move at all. Oh my gosh, I, I was you know it's I didn't I didn't change anything. It was fine. It was uh it was very uh convenient. Like I was living in a small apartment, but I, I didn't I didn't upgrade anything. Interesting. Uh, so you're, in terms of my lifestyle, I never, I never bought a car or anything like that. Like I was, I was just pocketing it all. Okay. So you're, you're there, um, and you're kind of at this big four. You're starting, um, kind of as a third year equivalent. So you're kind of a path toward manager, right? Yeah. Um, so I wanted to be a manager. That was kind of my goal. That was the, the strategic part. Was after I started, I was like, oh, I'll, I'll try to make it to manager. I think that's interesting. Um, but then, of course, opportunistically. I kind of changed, slightly changed teams, you know, once or twice, you know, during that, or like focus on, in terms of what I was doing 
um, based on whatever opportunity was there and kind of played a bunch of different roles. Were there a lot of other locals there or like, was it ex other expats in that office? All, it was all locals. Some, there was, there's a couple of other expats. So I, I, the numbers I, I mentioned were actually literally true. There was, there's about 10,000 people in China in this big four. And there was about 10 expats. And then four wow. of those are in Beijing and two are in Shanghai. And, and you were one of them. You know, so I, was, so I was one of them. So of course I knew the other three guys, you know, who are expats. Um, and then there'd be people that would come over temporarily. There's a, way more common is these international assignments. So if you're at a big four or some similar type of company, um, and you can do this, and even at my bank, this happens. I know that they sent people in New York over to another country to, to work. Um, if you get an opportunity to do something for three or six months, like definitely do it. Why not? I mean, if, if you're not like, Trying to take care of your do kid it before you yeah, before you have family before yeah. you have a family do it before you have a family just go ahead and go ahead and give it a try like it's it's definitely it's definitely worth it and then some people would try to parlay that into a more permanent you know remote working experience or just kind of develop their niche back home into somebody who can work with people you know from this country um, that they spend time in so there, there's a lot of temporary people who came in who came in and out and in and out so. So, but you know, there's, there's very few permanent staff. Fair. So you're, you're at like year two and you're, you eventually get the manager promotion. What, what, at what point are you thinking MBA, let's get back home to California? Yeah, I was, it's, again, it's a little, were you ever thinking, hey, I'm going to stay here for my life? Is this it? It's like, a little bit of opportunity. I would have been fine actually staying there. I didn't have, I didn't like hate my job or anything like that. It was a little bit of opportunity because um, one of the other expats in Beijing really wanted to get out and he was going to take his GMAT. So he's like, oh, I need a GMAT study partner. Like you should study the GMAT and think about applying because then it can give you some optionality, like in case you don't get the promotion, in case you do get the promotion, you know, um, but you want to do something else. And then I thought, oh yeah, that's, that's not a bad idea. And then it's another way to kind of um, make, if I was going to go back home, the transition a lot easier than trying to interview you know across the world certainly in an era with no zoom or whatever we're trying to use you know skype on very bad internet like yeah. if you've had that experience you know that's, that's always not, fun not yeah great. my whole team's on skype and it's uh it can be interesting at times but yeah so <laughs> yeah so that that in 2012 was you know in china was not it wasn't a great it wasn't a good uh experience people would i don't i don't even know how you would uh people are much also, that all the recruiting was much less online and much more in person. So I thought that, you know, I took the GMAT, basically, I studied with this guy, we both took the GMAT, he ended up not even applying to MBAs that year. So he didn't even use it. But I applied, I applied to a bunch of places. And then I gave it a lot of thought. And I, I happened to get, you know, very fortunate with some scholarships and other things like that, that just made the decision to even though I was by that time um, was a you know several years later I was a manager already. Um, I, it, I just did kind of a calculus of saying, okay, an MBA is going to let me. What was your G, what was your GMAT score? Super high. Uh, Seven sixty. Yeah, it was I figure you had an engineer background. <laughs> yeah, as the, the, the engineer the reject, was the math right? was uh, off the, the charts. Yeah. The low GPA <laughs> engineer scores seven sixty. It's a very it's very common. that's right. That's right. Well, it's at, by that time, I just wanted to do things differently, right? Like, um, you know, 
I was like, okay, I'm actually going to study for the GMAT properly instead of slacking off like I did, you know, in undergrad. And, uh, you know, I don't, I, you know, I think a lot of the older people that are older in school or people that end up going back to get their MBAs, they, they have this mindset. They're like, oh, it's another chance for me. Like, I, I want to try to do this better. I want to get into a more prestigious school or whatever. Like, people have that mindset. And then now that they're an adult, like, they take, they take things really seriously compared to before. Some yeah. people do. So you got some, you got some good scholarships and that, did that make the decision for you? Like when was the turning point of like, okay. I'm no, I got in and I was like, I was definitely going to go. Then I went to sleep and I woke up and then scholarship, you know, came in. I was like, okay, well, I'm, def- I'm definitely going to really, go. Really gonna go. Yeah. yeah. I mean, cause you know, money is, money is still a decision. I mean, even if it's not, the, the, and education costs get higher and higher every year. So there's always a question. I see this a lot on the forums of like, do I take out? you know, $400,000 to go to NYU and then, but I'll be able to, you know, make it into, you know, banking versus do I stay at home in my state school or something like that? Like this doesn't have as much recruiting or maybe does, but only for the elite five people or whatever. So it's always a, you know, it's always a decision for, you know, as somebody who, you know, was, you know, making 20, 25, you know, two, two K a month net, you know, when I started out, like, I'm not naive to think that that's, that's not a consideration. And, you know, it is, it is, sometimes it is worth it to take out the loans and make a jump. And sometimes it is not. And it really depends on, you know, who you are, where you're going, you know, how solid your plans are. And a a lot of luck, honestly. Yeah, I agree with how solid your plans are. Like, you shouldn't be doing that jump, especially that, that I feel like, little bit of an extreme example of 400,000 to NYU, but you should be doing that um, without a, a pretty good understanding. The hard part is if someone's 17, 18, making those decisions. That's the problem, right? Yeah. The, the time when you have to make the decision is the time when you're least sure about your plan. Yeah. And as somebody like, I went to college, I changed my major, I changed my job, and I did internships in three different industries. Like, yeah. you know, I had, I had changed my mind five times, but it wasn't a crippling decision because I had undergraduate scholarships coming in and I worked during school and yeah. school is less expensive. I mean, I went to a public, you know, university. So tuition yeah. was only 12,000 bucks a year or something like that, or 15,000. Right? Yeah. So it wasn't crippling and, debt. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't crippling debt and I was able to pay it off anyways after I graduated. So I had a couple of loans left and I was able to pay it off within, by the time I came back to the US. So it's awesome. Um, but then, you know, you, do you want to reset that decision again? And, and luckily, so you had most of scholarships. And so like, was it was banking on the radar at this point? Or when did it come on the radar? Were you, you were probably just, you some... just found Wall Street Oasis probably around this, this stage. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I was doing some research, you know, I, I got into so I got it. So I had to write essays to get into MBA programs. So some of them I wrote about consulting, some of them I wrote about banking, you know, because <laughs> at that time, I still wasn't really sure because to, to me, they're just very similar. I think people make people make them out to be way more different than they actually are um, for, for whatever reason. And I think it, it just doesn't, it's at the end of the day, to me, it still feels, it still feels similar enough. Maybe I just have a different perspective on it, but it's still client service. You're creating something that's written. You're giving advice. Like one is about a transaction. One might be about a piece of strategy, but at the end of the day, it's, it's pretty similar. And I think people that go into these two different things are, are you know could be could be swapped out without any disruption in the business to be honest 
Um, so I was thinking about it. Uh, I got into the school I ended up going to had a really strong banking program. So I thought, oh, for this, for this school, you know, I think my strategy is going to be to try to do banking. The recruiting happens first. So I'll know quickly whether I've been successful or not in getting a summer internship. And then I could always pivot to plan B and do something more, you know, real time if I want, if I needed to. Um, but for the time being, I was like, look, I'm just going to go all in on banking, banking, see how it goes, try to do a summer internship. And even then, if I do a summer and I don't like it, you know, whether I get an offer or I don't, I can still have time to transition. That was the point of doing a two-year MBA was having the flexibility to kind of figure things out as I, as I went along. And so then of course, like I, yeah, I found Wall Street Oasis. Yeah. is what you mentioned. Uh, Wall Street Oasis was instrumental. I mean, this is not like a, this is not a paid this is an plug. Ad. This is an ad. I this, is an ad. <laughs> this is the interstitial ad. You can't skip. Yeah. Um, Wall Street Oasis is instrumental. And in, I would say at least as helpful as my career consulting services to, to get like real, like direct answers. Because what happens when you're an, an MBA or even undergrad, it's fine to ask questions, but if you ask too many naive questions or you make a bad impression on someone that you're talking to or whatever, like, you know, the second year MBA students are evaluating you and then they're giving their advice back to the firms that they did their summer on. So they're like, oh, come talk to me, like ask any questions. And then, you know, a first year student will be like, oh, great. Like, tell me about the salary here. How does it compare to somewhere else? And then the second year MBA will come back to their firm and go like, oh, this guy's only asked questions about salary to me so far and he's okay or he's a little awkward. And, you know, you're just getting judged all the time. So the anonymity online of Wall Street Oasis and being able to, you know, have people that, you know, definitely do work in the industry. Some people have been it in a long time. Some people who have, you know, just done their summer or some people who, have, who are analysts or some people who have just transitioned to PE or whatever. Um, give you like concrete advice on, hey, like you can ask a silly question or a direct question or, you know, a question about a topic that people don't like to discuss, like comp and other stuff, like, like taking vacation, yeah. which sounds so dumb. Like people that aren't in the industry are going to be like, this is so dumb. Like, what do you mean you can't ask about vacation days or whatever? But you can't, right? Yeah. Even when I started, like I, I still to this day, I've never directly talked to any of my like colleagues about this stuff because you know there's a there's a whole stigma around it so um, Wall Street Oasis has been really really helpful in figuring that type of stuff out when you're when you're in that recruiting stage when you're in that fact finding stage it is unbelievably helpful um, because you just can't you, you can't get that type of candor um, from or you shouldn't get that type of candor to you know around the people there's they serve different roles you should obviously still ask questions yeah. and talk to people who are the second years or the, or the juniors, the seniors or whatever, who in your undergrad, who have done this job before. But the idea is that those are actually interviews. Every interaction with those people is, in, is basically an interview. Yeah. And um, the other direction, like they're interviewing you as much as you're interviewing them. So it's just something to, it's just something to keep in mind is that all the impressions matter. And that that stuff is all networking and your desktop research is just as important. You know, so, so Wall Street Oasis is great. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate the shout out. So you're coming back, you're, you're traveling back. You kind of, how was that re-immersion, we'll call it, uh, into U.S. culture from 
being gone for so long. Yeah, I mean, I didn't have any work experience that wasn't an internship, which is still pretty different, right? Yeah, kind of just the lowest person on the totem pole and doing whatever anyone asks you to do. So, um, you know, I came back, I was in a new city. So, you know, I was back on the West Coast, but I was in a new city um, that I've never lived in or even visited before. Um, you know, I, uh, as a result, like I, I didn't know anybody who was going to this business school. Like I wasn't working at a big company in that city and then just going, oh yeah, well, five people are going to go to this, you know, right. go to this MBA with me or whatever. So at least I can talk to them. So that was a little, that was a little different. So, but at that time, like I was also already married and stuff. So I was coming over with my wife, we we're planning to start a family and then that was the point of doing an MBA was to, you could, did you get married in Beijing? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. So I did. Was it tough to come back um, over here? And did she want to come back? Like, I assume that's got to be tough. She has family. Did she have family she, there? Or was she she does have family there and she had a great job there too. So it was, it was definitely a, it was a family level risk to both quit our really good jobs, you know, and, uh, and not, you know, and then take the risk that I will need to recruit for a job or whatever. So she stayed there while I was recruiting until I got my offer. I know that sounds very mercenary, but <laughs> yeah, she's just, she went back and forth. She kept her job and went back and forth and traveled back and forth for about a year. No, it's smart. You guys got are my, got my return redu- reducing risk and, and whatnot. So yeah. And I mean, it's at the same time, like I, I could go out and party, I could go study, you know, and then she would come over for, you know, a couple of weeks and then go back. It was, it actually worked out great. I think all, all couples should think about <laughs> such an arrangement. <laughs> uh, the awesome. opposite of that is uh, quarantining uh, for COVID for over a year, you know, like that's a yeah. real test of, uh, it's a real test of your relationship. It is, it that, is. That part's been great too, but, uh, but yeah, people have found out that yeah, you know they have, a, they have a preferred amount of time. <laughs> There's a level at which it's too much or too little for you. You have to figure out what that is. And if you're really busy, like she was in a busy job, I was in a busy job. You know, sometimes as anybody who's in this kind of work knows, like relationships are hard to maintain, hard to make in the first place. Yeah. Um, especially romantic ones, because um, you just can't plan around it. Yeah. Um. So thankfully, I was kind of. There's an advantage and a disadvantage to have already be, you know locked down or married as it is before going into before going into this type of thing for sure and the advantage is you don't have to you don't have to go do that later mm-hmm. uh, i've watched my colleagues that are more six and you're a post mba kind of it's 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 hard to find a meaningful relationship right for sure um because you don't have time no, um, you don't it's unpredictable when you do have time so try good luck scheduling a date or whatnot and maybe at the vp level it's a little easier yeah, it's not a lot of people. I mean, it's just a, it's like a theme, you know, but people are starting families like 10 years later than they used to. Yeah. Right. Like I got married at 25 and had my, you know, daughter at 29. But young, I mean, man, there's a lot of people man. that are yeah. 35 that are not, you know, not even married yet. Right. And there's people that are 39, they're having their first kid. Right. Mm-hmm. It's basically 10, it's basically 10 plus years. And then for your parents' generation, it's probably another five years added. Uh, subtracted from that yeah like sure. a lot of people are having kids when they're 18 19 20 21 22 yeah. like that was way more common to do that than it was to have a kid at 40 yeah at that time right and now it's the other way around yeah i'm 41 um, and i'm done man 
<laughs> yeah, I, hear you. I have three little ones, and I'm just like I'm thinking. I'm like sometimes, sometimes my wife's like, "How about a fourth? Of, like kind of half joking." And I'm like, "No way! <laughs> like I can't, I can't." Um, as much as yeah, I'd well, like you to, can but... always... yeah, yeah. There's there's no end. There's a there's an MD at my at my bank with like six or seven at wow. this point, and I think at that point, you know, you're you're just like whatever. The golden handcuffs. You yeah. have to. That's right. You need to, you need the older ones to start helping out with the younger ones. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. so I was in, so I was at, you know, at MBA, I was recruiting for summer associate stuff and, and catching up on kind of skills that I didn't have with my career that I would need to get, you know, to banking and doing all the preparation and buying the guides and stuff like that. Like they're well worth the money for anyone thinking about it. Like there's beyond kind of the, Memorizing the 500 questions to get kind of circulated around uh, by your school is is one thing, but you got it nowadays to stand out. You have to do more than just that because banks are pe- evil bankers like me are thinking of more complicated questions that you can't just memorize. Give me an and, example. Um, oh, I mean, I like to hand people a set of financial statements um, during our super day for sure. Um, I hand people a set of financial statements and ask them questions about that. Like, what do you think? What jumps out at you? You know, like, and so what, like you sometimes know, there'll be like uh, huge working capital issues or something like that. And you, there's yeah, just- it's like, oh, why do you think that is? And you can dive into that and like, you know, can you think of any examples of this or that? Like, you know, you can you can dive into that. And people are also asking um, the MDs like to ask stuff that's tied to like the real world and current markets. So I was. I remember being asked like, this is, I got like 13 first round interviews or something like that. Wow. And I was going to all these different, and the, you know, the nice thing about the MBA is that they're all scheduled in the, you know, the same two or three days. So it's yeah. not the insanity that is undergrad recruiting mm-hmm. where you do an interview, you get an offer, you have to decide now, but you don't even know who else likes you or not. Yeah. Um, then you kind of race to call other banks and try to schedule them soon and delay. The nice thing about MBA is you do them all at once. So I was going back and forth to all these different interviews um, on interview week and get asked crazy questions. And an MBA goes, what industry do you like? And I said, oh, I like, I don't know, like healthcare seems interesting. And they're like, oh, healthcare, what's the, what's the PE ratio of Amgen right now? You know, they ask a lot of gotcha questions like that to scare you. And like, why do you think that is? You know, um, how has it changed? You know, but if you were like in the health, if you were an analyst, it's like a shit whatever, test question. Know, be, uh, yeah. yeah, they're just, they're trying to scare you. Or I'd get re- asked really complicated from from another bank that was a more of a restructuring type of bank, like a Mollus or a Rothschild or a Hulan, whatever. Yeah, okay. Yes, yeah. exactly. One of those. One of those three. Yeah. Um, I got asked this just insane, uh, like mental math questions. Um, like there's a there's a pyramid with a number sequence that goes like the one, one, two, one, two, three, like add up all the sides of the, add up all the sides of the pyramid. Like how fast can you do that? I'm, I made that question up, but it's literally exactly something like that. Um, and there's, and, and things like that. They're just designed to kind of break you because they're just bored of asking, walk me through the DCF or a hundred dollars of depreciation. You do need to know that. And you will be asked that you'll basically be asked that stuff by everybody, but, as soon as you determine that you know that stuff, then people will sometimes will, depending on the bank, they will either take it to a more technical side or they'll just 
say, okay, you get it, you prepared, let's go on to fit. Um, I want to talk I to you. I want to, I want to talk to you something. Going more towards fit. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about just when you started full-time as an, so you, you obviously got the offer. But let's talk a little bit actually first, before we go there about just surviving the summer associate, um, you know, transition, because it sounds like you were super busy during your summer. Yeah. Um, I had no, I had no ego. So that helped. So I yeah. basically was like, look, I'm an analyst. I don't know anything, you know, as again, it's just the, it's just the part of it is just the desperation of being a mature person whose whole, who's made this gigantic sacrifice to get there. It's like, look, yeah, I'll bind books, you know, I'll copy stuff. I'll run and go get Starbucks and come back and I'll do my job. Right. And I'll learn how to model and I'll learn how to be an associate. Like, and I'll just do, I'll do it all. And um, you know, I don't, I don't care. So like, you worked about hundred hours. Were you working hundred hour weeks that summer? Yeah, probably. Easily. Yeah. I know if people round up, people whatever. exaggerate. <laughs> no, but I mean, I, I, you slept there. I slept in my, I slept there a couple of times. Yeah. I slept in my car, I think twice. And I slept on the couch once in the conference room. Did I need to, I, I don't know. Like, but it felt like at the time I really did you know? <laughs> at the time it felt like I really had to, like it was more, it was better to get like four hours of sleep in the office than like commuting back and forth where I was living and then wasting an hour and a half of sleep and getting up and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I advocate that and that's the way to get the summer internship. I don't, I don't think that, I don't think that you definitely need to, but I do think you need to have the, I do think you need to have the right attitude. Um, for sure. And I, I don't think for the most part, that's a problem that I've ever seen. I think people basically get that. Can you be, um, can, you be can you be too far in that direction where like you just bow down to the analyst too much? That's a good question. Cause I've heard this from a lot of people. Like, like what if you're you just like to, such a pushover that like they just, you, you know, need to like, prove that you can be an MD later, which is why they want to hire you as a full-time associate. Right. So you can't be immature about it, right? You, you know, at the same time, like, you literally don't know. Any, I mean, you don't know anything coming in, right? Like, you have the, the eight weeks or the 10 weeks or whatever. Like, it's just enough time to kind of start to make, like, fewer errors, like, to produce something by the very end of your internship. And so what people are evaluating there is they're just projecting like, how are you going to be in your career if we hire you and you come back and how long are you going to stay? Are you devoted to this team or this company? Um, will you be able to actually pick up the work and be a real contributor later on? Cause in your summer, you're just not like, and I was the closest thing to a real contributor as you could be during your summer. Like I worked, we closed three life deals like at the time. And I was like doing like the real stuff. You know, not just working group lists, but like, you know, modeling and helping out with sections of that and the presentation. But even then, like I'm not, people took as much time to explain things to me and correct things as, as they were taking, for, as they were saving for me working on stuff. So right. they're investing in your future and they're trying to predict what that's going to be like. And I think having a good working relationship with the analysts is a really important component. And it's said a lot, but it's still probably underrated. Um, is still an important component of things. And I don't, I think it's not about being a pushover, but I also don't think you should ever refuse anything an analyst asks you to do. You know, like it's way, it's like if we're talking about different types of errors, it's way better to err on the side of, you know, he would run through a wall 
for our team and he would pick up the roll up his sleeves and like help out with the analyst work whenever we would need him to versus he gave me attitude one time and you know like you just don't want you definitely the, the impact of that is way worse than saying oh well you know he's a bit too eager beaver i, yeah, I just yeah. in my I, again you can almost you can almost can't be you can't be too eager beaver almost when you're an associate trying to prove yourself like they're, they're not going to fault you for sleeping in the office start out start out eager and then become cool later on you know <laughs> like when you're i like that i like late, that phrase <laughs> start out eager and become cool later i love it yeah at the at the beginning there's just there's not there's not much benefit to to and trying so to be like clearly, this is how i did it at my previous company or whatever like nah just leave pretend you're starting out and leave it all leave it all behind leave all the baggage of your previous career and all that stuff behind unless how, someone how asks the, you specifically how, how are the offer rates um that year that you were at the bulge bracket for associates my my company did a really good job at basically just having a slot for everybody who was hired. They didn't overhire. They don't they don't do that. So um Which is almost hundred percent. Yeah. Offer rate was hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And I think our, our return rate was like eighty percent or something like that. Really 80, good. Eighty five. Yeah. So not not bad. The mid yeah. mid tier bulge bracket that's was really careful in hiring interns. Um, you know, I, I think uh that approach to me is great. There's a lot of places, and at the time, at least when I when I was interning, the um, the elite boutiques were were definitely not like that. They would have you know two slots for or they'd have one slot for every two people or something like that, or a ratio yeah. that's not one to one. And I think that is definitely more challenging. It's more challenging of a situation to get yourself into. Did you look I'm into the, saying, like, the associate offer rates before choosing which bank yeah, to? Definitely. Definitely did. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Smart. Definitely. I ask people direct. <laughs> I mean, like, well, I just, again, I'm, I'm a more risk averse person. A lot yeah. of people who end up like surviving a long time in banking tend to be. Yeah. Um, you know, because why would you do that versus doing a startup or something like that, right? So your, you your page jump, your, I'm looking at your, your page jump must have been pretty significant, <laughs> pretty monstrous, right? Um, or yeah, no. and I'm still pretty, still pretty frugal. Yeah. Um, hey. Uh, so it's just a way to, it's just a way to, way to live your life, I guess. Yeah. But so the, the pay helped, but you know, it all goes away somewhere. You're living in a high cost of living city. If you're living in San Francisco or LA or yeah, uh, New York or Chicago, right? You know, you have taxes, you have housing, you might still be paying off your loans. You have MBA loans or undergraduate loans, like, mm -hmm. you know. You're getting paid a lot, but you're not pocketing that much, honestly. And it's yeah. very easy to get your lifestyle can get ahead of you. And, uh, and then you don't have anything to show for it. You're working hundred hours a week. And then, mm -hmm. you know, you know, if you don't, if you don't pocket anything that from that, you're not really hedging against future risk. Like you can get laid off. Yeah. I could get laid off next year or something like that. You know, if, hey, I, if I had no savings, then I'd be in trouble. Tell me about your, your perspective. Like we had that survey we circulated a couple weeks ago about, you know, taking from the Goldman 13, like complaint. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then tell me about, we released a survey. I don't know if you saw it. It was like almost 500 respondents just basically saying, you know, how their mental health has decreased. The hours have been hard yeah. work from it's home. Validating COVID. what everybody knows, but yeah. has been getting no press for a long time. Yeah. So, so yeah. The five years that I've been in banking, right. Mm -hmm. The five years that I've been in banking. And it's funny because when I was in China, the whole thing was like, Oh, the people in Foxconn are jumping off the building into the nets and stuff like that. And, you know, but then when I was in banking, I, I've seen, you know, not naming names, but like, there's like four or five people like that are young analysts who, who basically overworked themselves, you know, to, to literal death. 
or, or suicide, which is a really difficult conversation, right? Mm-hmm. But it's happened. And then for every one person that's like that, there's 100, you know, 500, you know, analysts that are suffering a lot um, and associates um, who are, who are junior, junior bankers who are just having a really tough time. Or, um, you know, I kind of casually mentioned sleeping in the office as if that's something normal. But, you know, if we take a step back, like that's not normal, that shouldn't be expected of anybody. Like that's absurd. You shouldn't need to do that to get an internship offer. Um, you know, you shouldn't have that much you stuff still in the did first that, though, place. Knowing that the offer it was basically 100%, you still did that. Yeah. It's just the fear and the risk aversion of it. Like you. Want- I mean, I liked doing what I was doing, yeah. though, too. Like, I really, I liked it. And I was able to, I was able to, and it sounds crazy, but I was able to somewhat balance it out. Um, you know, it, but look, everyone is in a different spot and, you know, people are under a lot of pressure and I think that's gotten worse and worse. And I think with COVID that's gotten really bad, but the, the tendency I see at every bank, I've been following this closely because I've been working at on this issue at my own bank, on my own team, as well as I've been kind of watching WSO really carefully mm-hmm. to see what the reactions of the other banks were. And it's just kind of sad. Like banks are basically like, well, it's just because of COVID and working from home, it's less efficient, which means more hours. So what, it's going to work itself out once everyone's back to the office. Let's get everybody back to the office ASAP. Mm-hmm. But like people were killing themselves before yeah. COVID, like five years ago, four years ago, three years ago, like before people were remote, like this was a yeah, not even, not even everybody suicide. knew about. People just with underlying health conditions were dying. Oh, because depression and, you know, yeah. whatever, right? Yeah. Like underlying health conditions, you know, yeah. people are getting depressed. People are, you know, gaining 30 pounds a year. Uh, people are leaving the industry earlier than they really needed to. They come in, they have bright eyes. They're ready to make a difference. They like finance. They've worked so hard to get in here. Like, how can you not retain people that are like that? Right. Yeah. They made such a conscious decision to join the industry. To me, it's like unconscionable. And then you see the reactions of a lot of firms that range from either no reaction, let's get everybody back to work to here's some money, here's shut money. up, yeah. you know, yeah, whatever. And it's like, or let's reiterate policies that we already had about no Saturdays or whatever. And again, like tell somebody that's not in finance that, you know, so, that your firm thankfully now has, uh, you know, only a six day working week instead of a seven day working week. No laugh. They'll be like, no, are you serious? And like, no, no, this is great. Like if I can only have one day guaranteed off a week, that would be amazing mm-hmm. that if no one bothered me and it's just silly. So the industry has gotten behind the times of, basically everyone else and most particularly technology right mm-hmm. i look at the forums almost every single day there's a why banking instead of tech right i'm a college freshman and i'm a smart kid and i don't i don't know like i kind of like computers banking sounds interesting you know just like wh- where i was when i was a freshman in college a long time ago um you know what what should i do and honestly it's becoming a harder and harder sell yeah. uh, for people to do finance for, you know, for lifestyle reasons. And the compensation is, again, not, it's not that different. And to the extent it is, it's marginally not that worth it. Yeah. Unless you have a, you know, again, unless you have a real passion for the career, but it's chicken and the egg. Like, how do you find if you have a passion before you actually do the job? For sure. So the same person, if I was starting college again, like, would I go? 
would I go into finance or or consulting, or would I, you know, veer towards more towards tech? Honestly, and I've thought about it. Like I I might be the person who would probably veer towards more towards tech. Mm. Like if I started again, if this was if I had love the, honesty, the information, yeah. <laughs> if I had the full information, if I had the full information available to me. You also was, had you also have a little bit of a an advantage in the sense that you are a technically minded person who would probably be really good at tech because you I mean you were an engineer undergrad right some people yeah, don't so, have that gift and maybe they're more, a little more right brain right exactly exactly so yeah. like everybody's everybody's going to be a little different and you can succeed in both both tech and finance whether you're left or your right brain because finance requires a lot of analysis modeling and diving into sure. details and you know you can't be like, oh, I'm, I'm ready to make relationships, but you have to do a cap, you have to analyze a CapEx schedule. Like, yeah. at the same time, like there's tech, tech sales, sales portion, the people who really make the big bucks, right? So being outgoing in, in the sales capacity is also a very valuable trait there. So True. there's different ways, there's different ways to make it work kind of no matter what you're, no matter what you're doing. I'm still happy with my decision to do banking and that's a survivorship bias because I've stayed through to be a mid-level VP. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, as, as one person, I think that it's a good idea, but I think that the industry has to fix itself. And it's silly to me. I think people have short memories, like the VPs and even the directors MDs who had suffered in their job, you know, just five years ago and remember that pretty freshly in their mind, like still aren't keen on, you know, implementing meaningful reforms in the industry to uh, how could Wall Street always improve things? What could we do besides the survey? Because <laughs> I've thought well, about this a I, lot. I think not that we want all the continuing to, to us. <laughs> continuing to continuing to shine a light. And I, yeah, I mean, but the, the advantage that you have is that again, like people say the GS thirteen, but like Goldman Sachs is not unique in that aspect, and they might even be better than a lot of other banks, right? For all I know, and it's yeah. group specific and individual specific, but um, but you know, it's, it's the, uh, it's the overall culture. And I think painting a light uh, you know, on it is, is, a, is really, uh, is really good. And then just giving people tools to, to work through it is also really helpful. One is just, you know, the forum and the community, you know, I go back to the expat stuff, like having, having, being able to connect with people who are, um, who are struggling through it, you know, that's, that's really helpful to have a community. Um, sometimes you can talk about your with your fellow analysts in person, but you know we're work from home, so it's as easy to talk to people on Wall Street Oasis as it is to talk to people at your company at the yeah. moment. So yeah. that's a definite advantage. And then being able to kind of see and chart out a path to the future will help you survive short-term problems. Like short-term, I pain. wasn't thinking, yeah, yeah short-term pain. Like I wasn't thinking about you know, working a lot during my summer internship, because the whole point is to get an offer and go back full time, right? Um, so as long as you can have a goal that you're getting yourself towards, um, you know, it's easier to, to make it through when you feel like you have no idea what's going on, or you don't have a future or something planned out, then it's much harder to survive that. So Wall Street Oasis also is helping people to learn about exit options and to prepare for PE interviews or pre prepare you know, to explore other areas like we have, uh, you know, corporate finance forum and, you know, real corporate estate forum, funds, other yeah. areas like yeah. 
what, how do I make it coming from doing this to going to do something else? And that's just part of the, part of the conversation that, you know, an extra little part of the banking conversation is exit options and helping people explore that um, is, is really, is really important. So that's, that's all helpful. I mean, just in terms of is being there and being a resource and being a community of, of people that you can trust and, and get to know a little bit better and give honest advice and, or just joke and meme about things, right? Like people love the Instagram finance memes account. Yeah. My analysts found them all for me and subscribing to them so I can <laughs> see that coming across my feed in every day. So that's, that's been helpful, but you know, it's, it's a little bit about, you know, there's an opportunity too is banks don't hear this as well. I just thought about it too. We have, every bank has done these surveys, right? But people are never honest on them. They just aren't. And because, you know, they, they're afraid they're going to get found out and that might be true. It might not be true. Mm-hmm. I mean, to this day, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's, it's tough. It's, it's tough. Um, so you they're know, not getting accurate information. So the guy sitting at the top is going, everything's fine. Like 70% of people are uh, somewhat satisfied or better based on my, you know, rigorous survey of everyone. We got everyone to respond to it. So I guess they're, I guess it's fine. And that's, or we know we need to do a couple things, but it's not a disaster. But in reality, like, you know, day to day, even the people that would never say this in a survey, but privately, they're like, oh, I have no work-life balance. I have, you know, I've been asked to work on Saturdays, you know, every single week over the last month, but I'm just not willing to say that on a survey. So I think banks don't have a, um, a realistic picture of what happens in the industry or especially at different banks, they don't really know what's going on most of the time. I just don't know how you um, fix it. There's no easy answers because the, client, yeah. it's client service, right? It's, and you have, there's the incentive is to always use as much of the junior resources as, you know, everyone's battling for that same limited supply of resources. So like as an, MD- this is a fundamental problem, right? Yeah. Uh, between, between banking and consulting. Cause when I was at the big four, you spend time, you do a timesheet, you charge hours out. So if I'm suddenly spending 20 hours overtime, everybody on my team knows that it's not good, right? Like the utilization is going to have suffer and our profitability on our team on this project is going to suffer and everyone's going to ask why. And it's there, it's the incentive to figure out like why that's happening and to improve that. For banking, it's the opposite. It's operating leverage. You're a fixed cost, you're 85K, I guess 95K or whatever, yeah. you know, average for an analyst plus bonus. And then the rest, you know, hey, like if you spent 95K on something for a year, you're going to use it every day all the time, right? It's like buying something expensive. You're just going to, you're going to try to make it worth your while. Like getting an expensive, it's like joining Equinox, right? You spend $300 at Equinox a month and you're like, oh, I got to go every day to every make day. it worth it. Because then it's only 10 bucks a day. I can rationalize that. Yeah. But if you go three times a month, then it's $100 for an hour of running on the treadmill or whatever. Like that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So. So it's the same thing. So people are seen definitely as resources and they're paid, they're paid kind of a cost and there's no accounting. There's just no accounting for time. Yeah. And not everyone wants to do timesheets for sure. That's not the, I'm not saying that's a solution, but there's literally no way to track it. And so even the MDs kind of go, oh, this they, person's working hard on my project, but you know, I don't really know how hard. And Don't they have and like, uh, like key cards? Couldn't they show when kids are coming in and out of the office? Like, do they yeah, the but it's not, it's in the office. Yeah. And that's helpful. Um, but then it, it's also not tied to specific work. MDs or specific. Yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not still not tied to work. So the, their thinking is kind of, I remember being an analyst, you guys are hanging out, having lunch and I don't know, they're in their office. They don't know. 
they don't yeah. know how much time is really spent working versus hanging out or whatever. Hey, I only gave comments at 7 p.m. So they're really only working from seven onwards. I don't right. know what they're doing the rest of the day, but I don't care what their key cards say. I'm being cynical, but in reality, yeah. like, and then the real, those are the MDs that actually work on the deals. The people higher and higher up at the bank that aren't working on any deals, you know, are even less aware of, of what's going yeah. on. Right. Course, yeah. And so how do you make that? I think those it has to cascade downwards from there. Like somebody at a bank that's at a high level needs to try to get as close to the front lines as they can and really understand like, what are people doing? Why are they doing it this way? Spend, what are their biggest problems? Three nights, random nights in the bullpen. One, you know, I mean, <laughs> it may not, it may not be a bad idea because yeah. They're not even, they're not opening Excel. So they don't know how inefficient the fact set plugin or the capital IQ plugin is at this particular bank, right? Yeah. Like, they don't know. Like they get a feedback like five levels up from that. So yeah. making technology decisions or efficiency decisions or personnel decisions, you know, it, you know, it's really difficult if you're not, if you don't understand the intricate details. I mean, the, 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 the banking heads need to be more like, you know, they need to be more like F1 team managers and stuff like that to really kind of, uh, to really kind of, you know, be on a level playing field, I think, yeah. with the people that are doing, that are doing the work. I honestly think empathy could go a long way. A lot of times, you're right, like you can't, can't fix it. You can't it. fix a lot of structural problems, but at the same time, like your MD can think like, if they knew and they cared how long you were spending on something or they, they wanted to be efficient, they could probably reorganize a couple of things and get you comments a little bit earlier. They could give you slightly fewer comments or only working on one page is important instead of, you know, a moonshot, you know, five or 10 pages or whatever that's going to get thrown to the appendix or deleted or whatever, right? So again, like it's not, it's not an easy solution. But I think just under, everyone understanding really carefully the level below or the several levels below what they're working at is a, a really good step forward. But I, so far, I have heard zero uh, banking, M, banking CEOs or anything that make any yeah. kind of, a, you know, any move towards, you know, towards, towards doing this. Because they just think they know. They, they've all been analysts before. So. Yeah, they they value their own memory higher uh, than anyone else. And then, of course, like as the years go on, you remember things that happened in the past more and more fondly. You tend to forget some of the bad some of the bad details, unless they're really really bad. But the rest of the day to day, you know, yeah, uh, the day to day stuff, it changed. And also, the industry is just again, it's just changed, and they have to realize that they're competing with industries that are just night and day different. Mm -hmm. in terms of you know working style i mean like it's not about stocking juices in the fridge or whatever like a tech company it's about kind of like having time to work on your own project it's about you know that that sort of thing just to res like a respect it sounds funny but like a basic respect for the individual you know as a teammate so it's hard it's hard but you know just it's like, why do we, JFK, why do we go to the moon? Like we do it because it's hard. Like it's, it's a problem that's worth working on mm -hmm. and you can't solve it, but it's a problem that's worth spending every single year trying to get better on. 
yeah. if you're a banking MD because you're competing with more and more banks for the same talent, being with other industries, you're trying to retain people, retention is abysmal. This year has been a disaster across the board. Wait till June. Leaving. Wait till June. Oh, yeah. It's going to be, been, it, it could be bad. like a mass exodus. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, are people, do you feel like the banks are ready for what's going to happen once the analyst bonuses go out? I, I don't, I just think they'll think it's, again, they're just going to be like, ah, oh, it's COVID. It's COVID. Like, it's, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah. You know, things are going to be, once we're, once we're back in the office, that's going to solve all the problems. And it'll just shut people up because now they're sitting next to people. And they lose so. Think of how much, how much money they would save if they kept more second-year analysts to be third years, like yeah, or or just straight like, associate promotes. Yeah. Like they're already yeah. so efficient. They're so they're so good. But it's hard to do that because that means you have to like not drag them through the mud for two years. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, um, if you think about it, right? Like the people that. You know, it's a job that you already know how to do and you should be really efficient at it, right? Like being an associate is not that much. It's not like tremendously more difficult than being an analyst. It's kind of the same thing. And yeah, yeah. And once you get someone working kind of beside you or whatever, I hesitate to say underneath you, you know, but like once you get someone some some extra help, right? Like you can divide it up and like you're getting paid a lot of money. So the fact that people... N- still choose to leave should be a huge red flag right like <laughs> it should so. be a huge it should be a huge red flag like why wouldn't you be able to keep 50 60 70 percent of the people you know at your job and people are leaving for you know a lot of people leave for pe to make to make more money at state what they think will be fewer hours although in reality that can be the opposite yeah um but they, but that's but that's why but Again, like at a lot of shops or even, you know, for, for a lot of people, is it that much more money? Like, and if you're going to go back and not, you know, pre MBA associates at a middle market shop, which is where a lot of these analysts go to, they're actually taking, a lot of them are taking pay cuts or slight pay cuts. So, um, so it's just, it's really just like, Hey, I got to get out again. It's just like, I mean, it's just like, I got to get out of here. That's what happened to me after my second year. I had, I was offered a third year. I, you know, the VP said to me, how much stay, <laughs> how much? And I was just like, there's no dollar amount. Yeah. There's, there's no, just, I'm uh, like, I wouldn't even need so like, it was probably to yeah. stay another year. Probably, <laughs> I probably would have said like $2 million or something insane because just yeah, mentally right. and physically I couldn't handle it anymore. Um, and so, yeah, that's not, it's not exactly right. It doesn't, it doesn't really make, it doesn't really make much sense. Um, and it, it, it's one thing, it's kind of funny, like it's one thing if you're moving from one bank to another, right? But, it's, but people are just looking to leave the industry. Yeah. Um, and wow, I mean, it, it seems kind of inefficient. And then it's the same thing for a lot of places that hire, again, sorry, I mean, I was, I was a post-MBA associate, but kind of like relatively more useless post-MBA associates, because again, it's like tricking people for the first time into getting into finance, you know? And then maybe they can get a couple of more years at that level the yeah. people before they figure out what they really want to do and they can do better. So for the banks they're kind of like, Oh, all our junior problems are taken care of because you know, you get in, do a couple of years, you get out. And then maybe that's, maybe that's a model that's reasonable. And then the people that the couple of people who really want to make it to be a VP and, you know, I think the, the pendulum has swung so more. much like in terms of like so many people are running towards private equity that if you're willing to stick around in banking, you could probably be like, no, give me more. No, give me immediate. Like, you can probably get promoted really fast. I'm thinking. Um, what's your thought on that? 
What's your thought on that? Possibly. You obviously have to be good, but but, but good. you could also flip this around and just say, look, I know that people are going to leave in our industry, right? So let's treat them really well. We're going to make we're going to say, hey, our bank is the best, you know, place to train up. We're going to treat you with respect. We're going to give you lots of training. You can be open about recruiting for PE. We'll help you out. A lot of regional offices are like that, including the one that I'm in. Yeah. So, you know, hey, like you can tell your MD or your your whatever that you're recruiting for PE, like, yeah, they'll help you. They'll give you advice. Like yeah. you can take a week off of, you know, if you need to go to fly to another city and go recruit, like we want you to be successful as a person. And then when you come back, you know, you'll be back on your projects and kind of finish out your time here. Right. Like, you know, that doesn't seem to me like it's, I mean, it's costless. It's not asking for a lot of money. And I don't think you solve that by throwing more money at it. I think you solve that by treating people slightly better. And it's just yeah. not that more difficult to do, but you can differentiate your bank by saying, hey, we have a, an actually good culture. And yes, we work a lot, but if you work hard, it's going to be for a reason. Yeah. It's going to be for a, a page that's going to end up being in the final deck. It's going to be on a model that's going to end up being used or whatever. So, you know, we've, we've given it thought and there's consequences if, you know, something goes wrong, right? And at the same time, like, here's what we can promise to you. Like, we're going to, give you a lot of resources to help you be successful, whether you choose to stay on or whether you choose to move on. And I think just being open and honest about that, that in itself could be, if a yeah. bank came out and said that, like that would be a really interesting differentiating point versus the people that are kind of hanging around the hoop at the same level, at the same level of prestige, you know, yeah. which is another issue, to, I guess, to think about, which is shifting around a lot. But, yeah, really fascinating. Yeah. I want to talk to you but, more about it, but I don't want to. I don't want to keep uh, keep you much longer. It's already been a long, a long, a long no session, long episode. But um, I maybe offline we could chat at some point um, about stuff we can maybe leverage the community and do something to help more besides just a survey here and there. Um, but yeah, let's let's stay. Anything? Any final words of wisdom for for the young the young ones listening here? So, I would say that I I think that the the point earlier about strategy versus opportunity is really important. You should strategically, you should always kind of try to be thinking about what you want to do or a three-year plan or a five-year plan. In reality, it'll never work out. Usually it doesn't work out quite the way that you've planned it out. So you go back and you revise your strategy, but also just be open to opportunities to come up. So, you know, hey, I want to get into investment banking. Uh, I'm an undergraduate. And I think I want to, you know, work at a New York bulge bracket or elite boutique in the top three. Like maybe that works out, and that's great. Your strategy and your opportunity align if you get an if you get you know an option there. But also like opportunistically, like be open to the banks that are headquartered in you know Chicago. Be open to going somewhere else, right? Like there's banks in Atlanta. There's banks you know everywhere, you know, doing something. If you can't get into banking, you, there's a lot of finance adjacent areas. Like if you're from a total non-target and have completely struck out in banking across all the middle market, bulge bracket, elite boutiques, and you've tried and it doesn't work out, like, again, like banking isn't impossible. I didn't start out in banking. So, I mean, like you, but I see a lot of people that have, that are so gung-ho about banking, but they've never even thought about the big four advisory, right? Yeah. Yeah. Either because it's they think it's below them or it's not as direct of a path as they would want. But like, hey, you know, 
people are making good salaries. They're, you know, they're, they're learning on real deals. They're yeah. learning a ton. There's yeah. exit options directly to banking. There's exit options to MBA. Once you get into an MBA program, it's like hundred percent. It's like it's almost a hundred percent chance of you getting into banking if you really want to at the MBA level because banks are starving for talent. All the analysts are leaving, right? Yeah. And there's only so many MBA programs. So if you get into a top twenty MBA program, like you can, get, you're going to banking if you try hard um, yeah. from any background, from literally any background. <laughs> so, but if you're not, if you're not willing to be patient about it, right? On, on your strategy, that's going to be a problem. And if you're not opportunistic enough, if you're not open to going, hey, maybe you know a Fortune 500, you know, corporate finance, you know, platform, whatever, with a big name, so that when I end up applying to an MBA, people have heard about this company or whatever. Or maybe a startup, right? Yeah. And you know, working on a startup and growing that will be a part of a way of telling my story. But I just think like, be really open-minded. It doesn't mean like stretching yourself so thin and you can recruit at 20 different industries at the same time, mm -hmm. but have a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, and, you know, and think about it and be open as your, as your career develops. And I mean, again, cause you could get into banking, you can have everything that you planned for in your dreams, but then two years later, if you got offered a million dollars to stay in your job, you wouldn't do that. So you better give it some thought, right? Yeah. Like, you know, what you, what you kind of, you know, not what your life's passion is, but like what you would be open to doing next. And that's good enough for most of the time. And sometimes it's just about, hey, what's going to keep the most doors open possible for me in the future? If I don't know what I want to do right now, a lot of people in college, myself included at the time, didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was just like, what's going to open some more doors? And yep. then you pick a direction, you try it out, and you can, you can adjust from there, right? But, yeah. you know, a lot of, a lot of the uh, work is done by making that first step and then just having a really, really positive attitude if, if things don't go exactly as planned. Um, you can still have a great life doing almost anything. We're all very, if you're listening to this podcast, you're already extremely fortunate. Um, so it's, it's all about kind of, there's no, there's no one perfect path, but it's all about kind of your own individual journey. I love it. Let's end on that. Synergy, thanks so much for your time. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.